0: good morning. I had an interesting, albeit short, text exchange with Pastor Ken last night. Uh, For those of you who may not be aware of this, but Pastor Ken is our senior pastor, and he just started the fourth part of a four-part sabbatical that he's taken over the past couple of years. And although he's away in Southern California, his thoughts are here with us. And in his usual encouraging way, he texted me this note. Prayers for a great Sunday tomorrow. An awesome passage. Read it again today. You will do well. I had to thank him for his confidence. Unless, of course, he meant, you will do well. But I know, Ken, he didn't do that. So I just simply replied, thanks. Feeling some pressure to do the passage justice. To which Ken replied, It takes dozens of messages to make this chapter, to do this chapter justice. Smiley face. The Lord will bless the peace you have decided on. And therein lies my confidence that God would bless his word this morning. But Pastor Ken is right, though. Dozens of messages. In fact, one commentary that I read had 18 chapters on John chapter 11 alone. John chapter 11 contains the the shortest verse in the Bible, one of those early ones that we may be memorized in Sunday school, verse 35, Jesus wept. One verse, two words, and four chapters in a commentary. Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers from the 19th century, who preached two sermons on this verse, wrote, there is definite, or there is infinitely more in these two words than any sermonizer or student of the word will ever be able to bring out of them, even though he should apply the microscope of the utmost attentive consideration." Love that. In other words, we could never exhaust even those two words. So as a result, I I really wrestled with how to approach this passage, because it's such a great and rich, spectacular passage. I struggled with deciding whether or not to show the scripture on video, as we just saw, And if I did, then in fact, how much to show? And in the end, I thought it best to show the dramatic video of this spectacular uh, miracle, since it's far better than me, you know, reading the passage or trying to retell it and somehow try to capture the drama of this final and ultimate sign of Jesus. The scripture and the images need very little further comment. And by the way, some of you have been asking in our series in John, which we've called Taking Jesus Seriously... We've uh, been showing a lot of the scripture from John, uh, just instead of reading it, showing the scripture. And um, I think a few people asked, and I just kind of threw out there that it was the visual Bible, and I was wrong. I hope you didn't spend Christmas trying to, like, research and find this, past, this uh, movie. It's actually just simply called The Gospel of John, and it's uh, considered an epic motion picture, But it is very true to the scripture. If you have your Bibles, when we're watching this, turn to that passage and just follow along. Everything from the narration right down to what each of the characters say. And so if you want to, you know, take back the visual Bible on John, if it's not as good as this, then you can... uh, Whatever, you didn't get it, I know, but... Um, So, here's this comment. I am... We've been looking at this a few times. I've really settled on only two verses then, and uh, we'll look a little bit further at this. But verse 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, that was when Martha was out first visiting or met him, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will live even though he dies and he will and whoever lives and believes in me will never die sorry do you believe this we're going to come back to that question but this i am statement is now the 5th of 7 of these metaphorical i am statements that jesus makes throughout john's gospel we've already discovered a few of them i am the bread of life in john chapter 6 i am the light of the world in chapter 8 i am the door of the sheep and i am the good shepherd in chapter 10 Now I am the resurrection and the life here in chapter 11. And in chapter 14, we'll discover I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in chapter 15, I am the true vine. But Jesus says here, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, if you have spent any time going to funerals, this is often a verse that you will hear there, and for good reason. Because the context that it was in was that someone had died. Lazarus, to be exact, the brother of Martha and Mary. This week has been an unbelievably tragic week in our city, in our province, even our world. Last Sunday, an AirAsia flight from Indonesia to Singapore with 162 people aboard crashed into the Java Sea. All 162 people are believed to have died. And then early on New Year's Day, a shooting in Calgary at a house party resulted in one person dying and several more Injured. This past Monday night, we were having dinner when we saw police cars and then an ambulance race down the street just across the park from our home. Later, we discovered the tragedy that occurred in a home just blocks away from ours, and then later in a North Edmonton home. If you've been following the news, you know that there were eight victims in all four women, two men, and two children we are all shot to death by a man who then took his own life. All week long, details have been emerging of this horrific tragedy that was covered by news outlets across the world. But this tragedy didn't happen somewhere in the world. It happened in our community, in our backyard. A married mother of three children, Cindy Duong, only 37 year- years old, was an innocent victim In this terrible rampage. Her family is grieving. Her friends, including some who are part of our TCC family, are grieving. And I suspect some of you who are involved in hockey know or know of this family, as all all three children have been actively involved in minor hockey. So this is real life, tragic, horrific, painful. And there are so many times when life just doesn't make sense. And death is one of those times. So this isn't maybe your most cheery New Year's message. But stay with me on this. Because I believe even in this passage are captured some of the things that we see on this banner and that we've just reflected on through the Christmas season. It's a story of love. And there's joy. There really is. And there's peace to be found. And most importantly, there's hope. I don't know when, and I don't know how it will happen, but unless Jesus should return first, whether it be at home or whether it be in a hospital, whether painfully or peacefully, quickly or slowly, by disease or by violence, with or without warning, one day, somebody, somewhere, is going to pronounce me dead. And when we think of life, it is, in essence, bracketed by birth on one side And then death on the other. And so, friends, while it's no one's favorite subject, I'll admit that, this passage does ultimately make us think about death. Somebody died a real death. And whether we like it or not, it really is a reality that we face. Because death is the ultimate statistic, right? One in one dies. And when we read our Bibles, we discover that it speaks about life and about death with a with a quite a blunt, uh, and or a blunt and brutal honesty. In Proverbs fourteen verse thirty two, we read: "When calamity comes, the wicked are brought down, but even in death the righteous have a refuge." they have a refuge. And I want to talk about that refuge today. How in the midst of tragedy and in the midst of death, we can have tremendous hope. And consider Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2. Death, (coughs) excuse me, is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. It's the destiny of every man, and the living should take this to heart. In other words, there's no time to think about death when you're already dead, so we can only think about it when we're alive. And as much as we'd like to push it to the fringes of our thinking, there's perhaps no more critical subject that could be confronted by human beings when life's, who will ultimately face life's one ultimate certainty, namely that life will one day end. And when we speak about death, we do not speak just of a physical event. Sure, the physical event kind of stands at the center of death, but beyond death, as we understand it, there's this mysterious element which goes into eternity known only to God. That, if you will, is the far side of death. But on the near side of death, death intrudes into our lives. It casts a shadow over our living in the form of sickness and weakness and ultimately in the ultimate disintegration of these shells in which we live and call our bodies. 2003 was a very difficult and tragic year for us, for us as a family. In January of that year, Tina's younger brother Jimmy, he passed away from colon cancer and then complications related to it. In July of that year, some of you connected to Camp Caroline may recall a tragic car accident that took the lives of four people, three from the same family, that were returning home for the weekend from camp with plans to then go back and spend the rest of the summer at Camp Caroline. The Beckwith family attended Parkland Baptist Church in Spruce Grove, and I got to know them when I did an internship there while I was attending seminary here in Edmonton. Sean Baselt, who was also a passenger in the car, was a student when I was a youth pastor in Calgary, and we remained good friends with the family, even when we moved out to Ontario. I came back that summer and attended the memorial service for the Beckwiths, and then uh, later officiated at Sean's memorial. And if that wasn't enough tragedy for one year, in October, a neighbor and close friend took his own life. I so vividly recall finishing that graveside service and and just literally collapsing into Tina's arms, completely spent, and only God sustained me through those days. But all that to say that I've been touched and impacted by death personally. Most recently in 2013, Tina's mom passed away. In in May of 2012, my mom passed away. So this is a a real-life thing that we all deal with. So we shouldn't just say, oh, it's a taboo subject. It's not something that we should talk about. And as a pastor, I've been called upon countless times to try to offer words of comfort in some of these most difficult situations. And maybe along the way, I've learned a few things that I want to just share about, it, about that this morning. So what do we know about death? First of all, we can say this, that death is real. It's real. It's real. Many of us will f- have maybe confusing, perhaps even painful remembrances of our first experience with death. And if you think back and remember the death of a friend or a loved one, and you might remember those feelings that you had, you went, this is surreal, this is weird, this is strange, and so often it just seems like a dream, right? We're just going to wake up and discover that, that it wasn't real, that, 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 but then we all of a sudden realize that we're awake and that it is, in fact, very real. In the narrative of the death of Lazarus, it starts out with stating that he was sick. But Jesus knew that Lazarus would die and that, in fact, he had died. He's God, after all. But then in verse 11, after he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Death is sometimes compared to a deep sleep from which people will one day be awakened. But the disciples, they're a little slow to get it. And, and, and so they take Jesus literally and figure that, that if Lazarus just gets some rest, right? Sleep is good to help him recover. And so Jesus just, well, I guess I got to be blunt with them. And so in verse 14, <clears throat> then he told them plainly, <clears throat> Lazarus is dead. It's a matter of fact, isn't it? And those three words, insert any name, are the most painful, difficult words to hear. But they state a fact. Now, sometimes we might try to minimize a little bit and say, well, they're gone. Or, um, you know, they passed away. But death is real. The second thing that we know about death is that death is an enemy, it's an enemy. The Bible makes it clear that that death is, in fact, an intrusion into God's creation. When we look at the Bible, we discover right at the very beginning of things, in Genesis chapter 2, the entry of sin into the world, and therefore the entry of death. You see, humanity, or secular humanity, has no answer for the origin of death. Humanity is hard-pressed to explain why it is that we die. But the Bible has an answer. We read in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now understand, death was not part of God's original plan, nor is death part of God's ultimate purpose. And on that day when we see him and we're made like him, there will be no more death, because as we're going to see in a moment, God has dealt with it. But the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Romans, explains his understanding of these things. In Romans 5, verse 12, we read, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And continuing verse 17, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. One of the striking features of this event in the life of Jesus is his emotional reaction to the mourning of Martha, Mary, and their friends. Now, their sorrow is real, Just because death is real and death is an enemy and all the things we're going to say, it doesn't minimize the emotional impact. Grieve is very real. But as the Apostle Paul writes in Thessalonians, he says, but we do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope, right? So there's this huge difference between grieving with hope and grieving without hope. I went off on a tangent there and now I lost my place. But he has this emotional reaction. Verse 33, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then just two verses later, the one I already referred to, Jesus wept. Now, on the surface, we may see this as Jesus also experiencing grief, and, and he certainly was, because when we grieve, there's tears, there's emotion. This was a friend, after all, and we see repeatedly that Jesus loved him. He loved Martha and Mary. This was a close relationship that he had with these three siblings. He felt their pain, and he cared. He always does. But there is more here. Because the Greek word used and translated deeply moved means literally to feel something deeply and strongly, to be stirred, to be agitated. The the New Living Translation captures this well when it translates verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled anger. That is how Jesus felt about death. The same word is then used in verse 38. So death makes Jesus angry because he knows it's the result of sin. He knows it's not supposed to be this way. It's just gotten messed up. And now death is an enemy. And so we know that death is real and that death is an enemy. But thirdly, we know that death is not the end for anyone, okay? It's not the end. Death is not annihilation. It's not the entry kind of into nothingness. There is more beyond death. Hebrews 9 verse 27, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Right? There's going to be a day of reckoning. And then in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. As more than one commentator pointed out, when Jesus called Lazarus out from the grave in verse 43, Lazarus, come out. It's a good thing that he was specific and actually called Lazarus by name. Otherwise, all of the graves with an earshot could have been emptied. It really is an unbelievable, incredible, this miracle, right? Think about it. The voice of the omnipotent creator, the all-powerful creator, speaks. And even Lazarus' dead body obeys. It wasn't just a resuscitation. This was a resurrection. He was dead four days. Did you catch that in the video when they're like, roll the stone away? There's going to be a stink in there. See, a time is coming when there's going to be a great calling out. A time of judgment. And we might not like to think about it, but it's true. And the only time we can think about it is now. We also know that beyond death, there's not one destiny but two. This makes us uncomfortable. And it's an unavoidable truth of Scripture that not everyone is going to the same place. In fact, we are headed today towards one of two destinations In Proverbs 14, this destination is hinted at. And in Proverbs 11, there's a similar hint. This time in relation not to the righteous, but to the wicked. Verse 7, when a wicked man dies, his hope perishes. But when the righteous dies, even in death, they have a refuge. And when we think of these things, they seem so alien, so hard, so strange that, well, frankly, we don't want to talk about it or think about it. But hear Jesus on these things. A Jesus who took little children on his knees. A a, a Jesus who left the glory of heaven and came to earth. A Jesus who healed the lame and made blind men see and made deaf ears hear. A Jesus who went to the extent of dying on Calvary so that we might have life. Listen to what he said. Matthew 18 verse 3. I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then just a few verses later in verse 9, chapter 18, if your eye causes you to, to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. If what Jesus said was true about heaven, then what he said about hell is also true. And a careful reading of the Gospels will reveal to us that he said twice as much about avoiding hell as he did about entering heaven. Fact is, there's is not one but two destinies. Perhaps this is why we sometimes fear death. We don't want to talk about it. We approach it with cynicism. We approach it with humor. Like Woody Allen said, it's not that I'm afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. To that, Jesus says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. So the one who dies a physical death has spiritual life, eternal life in heaven, discovered when we believe in Jesus and place our faith and our trust in him. And when we place our faith in him, when we cross that line of faith, we are, in in, in essence, moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. And lastly, we know this, that death is a defeated enemy. So yes, it's real. Yes, it's an enemy. But let's not forget it's a defeated enemy. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 57, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death is gone. Imagine a bee is flying around your backyard and you're trying to keep it away from everyone and you're trying to protect your children and so you grab your child and you embrace him in your arms and the bee comes and stings you and now the sting has been drawn out and the children they no longer have to fear it and they can play in the yard and it might buzz around all afternoon but it doesn't matter because the sting Is gone. And at Calvary, on the cross, Jesus drew out the sting of death because he bore in his own body our sins on the cross. And he died. But he rose again and conquered the grave. And so death is a defeated enemy. So when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, he was declaring his authority over death. That defeat was changed into victory. And this miracle that we're looking at this morning of raising Lazarus from the dead was an amazing demonstration of his power over death. And it really was a foreshadowing of what was going to happen in his life. So we need not fear death as a biological fact because for those who believe it will be entry into an incredible new reality. But that drawing of the sting of death is not just automatically given to every individual. It's given to those who will come to Jesus as little children and repent and come in faith and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you lived and that you died and that you rose again, and I give my life in honor of you to worship you and to follow you and to obey you. In closing, Chuck Swindoll in writing on this difficult subject says this, There will come a day when God will deliberately allow death to have its way in your life and mine. You and I will one day succumb to death's stranglehold. We too will die. Our loved ones will all eventually die. For some it will be before the end of this year. For many it will be before the end of this decade. For some it will seem terribly premature. For a few it will be accidental, even tragic. Some may die horribly as the victims of terrorist attacks. We know neither the time nor the manner in which we all breathe our last. Nevertheless, death remains certain for all. But just as certain is the hope of eternal life. So that we can face the reality of death without fear because of faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says again, I am the resurrection and the life. That's who he is. And he demonstrated his power and victory over death. And he who believes in me, that is, live in relationship to him, give our trust and our hope and our confidence to him, even though he dies, and whoever lives and again believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? that's the fundamental question of life that we have to answer. Each of us has to answer a very penetrating question. Do you believe this? And there's just two answers. Yes or no. In a moment we're going to gather around the Lord's table and we're going to have communion and we're going to through this symbolic act, remember Christ's death. And as we take some time, we're going to distribute the elements, first the bread and then the, the, the cup. their are symbols, the bread of his body, the cup of, of just juice is a symbol of the blood that he shed for us. And we're going to distribute those elements. The worship team will, will be singing a song. You're welcome to join them. You're welcome to just sit and think. But one of the things I want us to think about is just this question. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Because how you answer that is critical. And if you can say with absolute certainty, yes, I believe that, then the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.1 is a reality. For there, Paul writes, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, When we die and leave these bodies, we will have a home in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. And so we say thanks. We can say thanks to God during the time of communion for the fact that he died in our place so that we could have eternal life. And if you're not sure how to answer that question this morning, if you're not on the yes side of this question, I can just, all I want you to know is that you can have hope, you can have confidence, you can have joy, you can have peace. I I hope you don't leave here going, man, I went to church on Sunday and all he went on and on about was death. I mean, how depressing and brutal was that? Don't hear that. Here, there's joy, there's peace, there's eternity to look forward to. And while it doesn't mitigate real grief, it does give us hope. And it does give us confidence. There is an answer to despair and doubt. And so I'm going to invite the servers to come here. Join me at the front. We're going to move right into distributing these elements. Pastor Ed's going to come and pray and return thanks for them. And then we're going to hand them out, hold the bread, hold the cup. And when everybody has received those elements, then we're going to participate together.